We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. If you want to begin to tap or turn your way there, Isaiah chapter 40. This is the second week of our uh, approach towards Christmas, our Advent series. And so last week we looked at the idea of Advent's justice. And this week we're looking at the idea, focusing in on Advent's glory. And it's really, uh, glory happens to be one of these things that's tossed around a terrific amount within normal Christian conversation. You know, kind of glory be to God, a glory, and I pray that God's glory grows, is manifested in your life. But we give, in some sense, very little time to actually considering what in the world that actually looks like, and, and, and it, it becomes something that we just kind of toss around without a whole lot of real associated meaning attached to it. And I hope that what we do today is begin to uncover at least one aspect of what that looks like within the life of Israel and this expectation of what happens when his glory shows up, what happens when his glory appears. Now, the interesting thing that I think we'll find in chapter, between chapters 39 and chapter 40 requires a little bit of kind of delicate handling. One of the things you observe is that 39 is just a standard kind of recounting of fact. This happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then you roll into chapter 40, and you think, oh, hold on a second. Something different is happening here. He's, he's not talking in the same way that he did before. He's moving from just kind of conversation to, uh, to metaphor. He seems to be describing a time that is different than he was talking about in chapter 39. So I want to kind of highlight that to you. Let's begin to look at chapter 39 as we head our way to chapter 40. It says, At that time Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. So here's the deal. Hezekiah is king over Judah, and he's sick. And he's so sick that he's approaching death, and he prays to God, and he is, has an extension added to his life, and the king of Babylon has heard about it, so he sends this envoy down. And so just like uh, you, if you have friends come over, they say, oh, uh, you know, Tim, I didn't know you'd been sick. And you're like, yeah, I've been very sick. I've been gravely sick, gravely ill. Thought I was going to die. Pastor didn't visit me, so I made a recovery. And, but, but it's good to be here. It's good to be alive. And so and they say, well, Tim, show us your house. And you say, okay, well, let me show you around. Well, this is what Hezekiah did. So these envoys are down, and Hezekiah begins to take them around. And he shows them everything he has. It says, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. Now look at this. It says, there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. He showed them everything. He didn't keep them from seeing anything. He showed them their defenses. He showed them all of their wealth. And you can imagine that as they walk around, they're like, oh, this gold is yours. He's like, that's right. All that gold is mine. And all these men and all these chariots and all these horses is yours. He's like, yep, all of those are mine. Look at all my vast wealth. Look at all my vast military prowess and power and ability. And the envoys are like, take note. Write this down. Hezekiah, what are you writing? Oh, nothing. Don't worry about it. Show us some more stuff. So Hezekiah shows all of this to him, and then the prophet comes over. And the prophet, in verse 3, comes to Hezekiah and says to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come from? Hezekiah said, Well, they came from Babylon. They wanted to see everything in my house. And he said, What did you show them? So I showed them everything. I didn't hold anything back. Reasonably self-assured at his own ability, at his own prowess. So then Isaiah has this word of rebuke for Hezekiah. He says, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, 
The days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, from whom, whom will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. He tells them everything you've shown them, everything you have gloried in, everything you have found confidence in, everything you've seen will be taken from you or be stripped away. You acted foolishly. You gloried in your own strength, and this is going to be the repercussion. The sinfulness of Israel will be visited upon them in their forced removal from the land and in their new captivity in Babylon. But look at Hezekiah's response in verse 8. It says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my day. There's a very real temptation for each of us to glory in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own confidence, to look at difficulties that surround us, difficulties that find us in our lives, and to say, man, I've got this, I've got this locked up. But what does it take to reveal that we don't? It takes a downfall. It takes shattering devastation. But more than that, it takes the glory of the Lord showing up. And the fascinating thing that we're going to see in chapter 40 of Isaiah is that the glory and the manifestation in the presence of our God shows up on the far side of disobedience. So this word that Isaiah is preparing to be told by God to speak to Israel won't be effective for them for almost 200 years. So we have Hezekiah's disobedience, and then immediately this word comes to Isaiah that he's supposed to impart to Israel, and this word will not be effective for them for almost 200 years. You see, it's still almost 100 years before they will be sent into captivity. So what I want us to see in that is God's provision of comfort always precedes our disobedience. God's provision of reconciliation and redemption predates your disobedience and rebellion. And where his glory is manifested, his comfort is found. So we read this amazing display of Hezekiah's just kind of boldness, this, this brazen misunderstanding of his own ability and all of his might and all of his majesty and then in this, look what the Lord tells Isaiah to come and say, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, comfort my people. Man, if, if I'm Isaiah and I have gone to Hezekiah and he has done this boneheaded of boneheaded moves, my gut feeling level response is, God brings wrath, you're going to die. But what does he tell him? The disobedience of my people, they will be left away. But what will draw them back is not further wrath. It is not further punishment. It is the promise of comfort. And so 200 years, they're waiting on this comfort to be realized in their lives. And so what is drawing them back 
isn't a desire to see punishment end. It's a desire to see comfort begin. So he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. This is this great instruction that God is forming and fashioning in Isaiah's heart this message where he's supposed to go out and speak directly to the heart of a future people. And so he goes out and he finds you, and he finds you at the headwaters of some significant decision you're making. And God knows that this decision is going to bring ruin and pain to your life. And the word that he has spoken to your heart is tender and gracious. His grace and his mercy always precede your disobedience. And they're waiting for you on the other side. So Isaiah goes to this people and he begins to speak this message and begins to tell them so that when they are in captivity, and so when they're reflecting upon their disobedience and then beginning to wonder, is God done with us? Is he finished with us? Has he had enough of us? Is he going to find a new people to work with? The message that would play over and over and over in their hearts would be comfort, comfort, tenderness. This promise, continuing in verse 2, that their warfare, their difficulty, their strife would indeed find its end. And look what he says, that their iniquity would be pardoned and that all of their sins would have been atoned for. It's this great difficulty if we find ourselves in the midst of rebellion. You're in the midst of open sin. You're in the midst of disbelief. This wondering that tends to well up in our hearts, is God through with me? Does he want to just kind of wash his hands and be done with me, to treat me the way my family has done? And, and maybe in the, even this sense kind of begins to take root in your heart and to say, you know, this is what I deserve. I deserve for him to be done with me. I deserve for him to have nothing left to do with me. And so I presume that, that that's what he's going to do. But what we read in here is that he speaks to these people. He speaks to Israel. He says, your iniquity is pardoned. You have received already from the Lord double for all your sins. So God begins to point at the way of redemption for them as he points at the way of redemption for us. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And what's going to happen? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God begins to speak to them in terms that they would rightly recognize and understand. And so in terms of kind of travel around, the, when the king of Babylon would want to travel around, they would make a highway from one city to the next. And so they would send workers and engineers out, and they would begin to work in this area. And so they get the shovels out and get the spades out, and they're removing rocks, and they're removing trees, and they're creating straight paths from here to there, and they're mounting the dirt over. And so he would have a highway to travel on so he could move quickly from one place to the next. But even in the midst of doing this, they recognize that they're only removing possible obstacles that are in their own ability to remove, right? So it's not like they would come to a large mountain and say, oh, it's just going to take time and energy. I got a cousin lives down in that Palestine. He said he can do that. No. And so what they do is they would find an easier way to navigate, an easier way to go around. But what happens when God wants to travel? 
He describes it in terms of hills, mountains, and valleys. And he says, every mountain you see is going to be brought low. And every valley you see is going to be raised up. And every rough place is going to be smoothed over. And so he describes this terrain in between these two areas. And he says, it is going to be smooth and clear. And so what he's pointing to is God's incredible ability and strength, which far surpasses the king of Babylon. See, one of the things that had to roll around in their heads in the midst of captivity is, is God strong enough to return us? Is God strong enough to bring us who have no army? Is God strong enough to bring us who have no money? Is God strong enough, strong enough to bring us who have lost our hope back into this land and to redeem us? So Isaiah describes God's strength and ability in terms of taking every obstacle between them and his mercy and bringing the mountains low and bringing the valleys high. So he is creating this clear path from himself to them. But we recognize that on the other side of their disobedience is the appearance of his glory. Verse 5 tells us that in the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. They've been waiting on it, waiting with anxious anticipation on the glory of the Lord because his glory is showing up, displaying in brilliance and radiance this manifestation of their God and his power and ability meant their forgiveness, their restoration, their redemption, and their return. But look what he does here. He said, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we begin to get a sense that God is not solely speaking to, communicating about what he's going to do in their day. Historically, if you're going to look at this and describe this and kind of find an understanding of how these things are working out, God did not manifest himself in all his brilliance and glory and by that return them from Babylon back to the land. He raised up an outside army to come in and do this, but not all flesh is seeing him. Not all flesh is responding to him. So it's giving us an indication then that at least something else greater is yet to come. Because as we see here, all flesh shall see it together. And then we move right into a passage we're familiar with, this, uh, which would later be spoken by John the Baptist. Look at 6 through 8. says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? In essence, a voice is telling him, shout, declare, raise your voice. Don't let this be something you casually say, but let everybody who passes hear it cry. And so he says, what shall I cry? And then he says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. What's God pointing at? He's pointing out the incredible temporary nature of humanity. That all of us, all of our lives are passing and fleeting. Very few of us in this room will be known by name by, our ancestors, by people that follow us in one to 200 years. Very few of us. 
You have to do something absolutely amazing if you want to set your name apart so that people might remember you. We are quickly forgetting history. We are quickly forgetting people and persons of significance because, for one thing, we seem to make and try and make everything significant today. But he tells them in this, all flesh is grass. He's asking them to find worth and value in things of permanence and things of eternity. And that is in himself. Look what he says in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the things that will sustain them over husbands passing and wives passing and friends dying and suffering the oppression of the Babylonians is the promise that God's word will stand. And so what word is he referring to? Is he saying, look, the the Old Testament, the Bible you have there, it's not passing, it's not going anywhere. Don't think that's what he's talking about. In this instance, what he's talking about is his word to them of comfort, return, and forgiveness that is matched and met with the appearance of his glory. His word will stand, his word endures, and it endures still today. So he begins to give them kind of this command on the basis of this. He says, go on up to the mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And so this people who 200 years from now will still be in captivity, he tells to them and describes just like their cities, their their namesake going up on a hill and declaring to see, to envision God. And in seeing and envisioning God and recognizing him there, they take hope in God's presence. They take hope in his manifestation. They take hope in who he is. So look at how he's just continually described in verses 10 and 11. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. You remember the picture that's kind of memorialized in World War II? You have the, the woman who just kind of has her bicep up like this, and so it's a picture of strength and ingenuity. It's a strict picture of strength and ingenuity, not of a soldier, but kind of this inborn understanding that someone else can take part, and someone else can muster in might. But we look at strength. This picture of God in this talks about him coming in and he has this arm that is set and this arm that represents might, strength, and power. What they would have perceived and recognized is their own weakness and inability. They were defeated and they were dragged away. And because of their identification as the people of God, there could have been this temptation to presume that God himself is weak, that he was defeated, that he stuck back over there in the land or that he hightailed it out when the Babylonians came in. But this picture shows that the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. He is not bested. He is not defeated. Neither the Babylonians nor the Persians could defeat this great God. Behold, his reward is with him. God brings forth his salvation, his recompense before him. But look at the juxtaposition. Look at the comparison that he offers here. It's this incredibly powerful, overcoming God. Oodles and oodles of muscles, or you know, however you want to describe that. Probably not with the word oodle. 
He's got muscles and might on top of muscles and might. Power and ability. But he takes this incredibly powerful picture of God, and then he begins to cast him and fashion him in terms of tenderness. Now, we wouldn't ordinarily do this. We wouldn't ordinarily think of somebody who's just overflowing with strength and, and, and power of having the capacity and the ability to be tender and close and comforting. But this is exactly the picture that Isaiah gives of our God. This mighty, this powerful God, he says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Surely, the people of Israel are his sheep. Surely there are those he has longed to gather into his arms. Surely they are those whom would be defenseless without him. He will carry them in his, in his bosom, and he would gently lead those who are with young. So God gives them this sure promise of his ability to deliver, this sure promise of his ability to help them return. Think about God's provision in this. A hundred years before they would be taken into captivity. Close to 200 years before they would return. Their disobedience at an all-time high. But his word to them 200 years into the future is comfort, mercy. He is comforting them with his provision. And he is meeting their disobedience with the display of his glory. So we know historically that God moves in, that he has Cyrus come in and, and utter a decree, and the people come back to the land. And we see, in some sense, this cycle begin again, where they come back into the land, and they are the people of God, and then they turn their hearts to following themselves again. The prophet Malachi is the last one to speak a word in the Old Testament. And then there is a 400-year gap between Malachi and anything else. But the next time God shows up, he doesn't show up with this amazing sense of just his, his right arm ruling. He does it in the most unconventional of ways possible. They weren't anticipating it. They weren't looking for it. But Luke 2 records it. Luke 2, we see that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around, and they were filled with great fear. So you have these shepherds, and they're out at night, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden darkness is interrupted with the shining brilliance of our God's glory. So he shows up there, and, and they are filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For all people. For unto, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom, with whom he is pleased. The glory of God shows up, and it does so in the most unlikely of ways. They're expecting armies, they're expecting the heavens to be ripped open, and what happened? Instead, out on a hillside, a bunch of shepherds gathered around, 
and an angel appeared in their midst to the most unlikely of people. The most amazing thing took place. The glory of God showed up. And things began to change. We find that John the Baptist, this one who stands out in the wilderness and cries, we see him show up in Matthew chapter 3. And so John wants people to understand exactly how great the one who's going to follow him is. John's out there, and he kind of has this, this first century Abercrombie thing going for him, uh, camel and you know, honey and locusts and all this good stuff. And he's out there, and he's baptizing people for the repentance of sins. And everybody's starting to follow John and believe in him and, and think, this is the one, this is the guy. John says, you need to understand something. I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When the glory of God shows up, it is the provision on the far side of our disobedience. Lastly, I want to show you something Jesus says of himself. This one who shows up, this one who has the winnowing fork into his hand. This is how he characterizes and describes himself in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The provision for God far surpasses your proclivity for disobedience. And the provision of our God comes way in advance of your disobedience, way in advance of your life. The provision of God is founded in eternity past. Jesus describes himself and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd <clears throat> lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Today. As you begin to consider the role of the glory of God in your life, know this. The glory of God calls you to repentance. God's manifestation in the person of Jesus, this good shepherd who came, who was born in Bethlehem, this good shepherd who came, who died on a hillside. This manifestation of the glory of God displaying both his comfort and his power, his ability to overcome sin and death, extends to you comfort, comfort. And he speaks tenderly to your heart in the midst of incredible disobedience and indifference, and he bids you come. If you're in this place today and you don't know Jesus, he bids you come. To surrender who you are in the anticipation of God's glory, he bids you come and be forgiven. If you're a Christian in this place today and you are moving and believing and your own rebellion is more powerful than God's ability to redeem you and to call you back. To you as well, he says, comfort, comfort. 200 years before they would come back to the land, God's message of redemption was sent to them. In eternity past, God's message of forgiveness was sent to you. And he calls you, and he bids you find comfort, to find comfort in the manifestation of God's glory, the person of Jesus Christ, God come in flesh to wear sin, to die, and to be raised of life so that you and I might be reconciled to God.
Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Father, God, I pray for the lost in this room, person who does not know you. They have never heard the name of Jesus or they've never submitted themselves to him. They know a lot about you. God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bid them come to receive comfort, to receive forgiveness, that they might be reconciled. God, it is truly amazing that your provision for each of us precedes our disobedience and it waits for us on the far side. Would you cause our disobedience to be interrupted? Would you cause us to find comfort today? Would you breed humility in our hearts? Would you guide us in all truth? God, would you help us to be a people who long to live lives glorifying you and enjoying your glory forever? And we pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.